Please be seated. Until relatively recently, I would have told anyone who asked that the two places to see miracles in Atlanta on a regular basis are the Shepherd Center, the Shepherd Spinal Center, uh, for one, and the Marcus Institute uh, addressing people on the autism spectrum for another. But in recent years, I've added a third place, and that is the neuroscience department at Emory. Uh, not too long ago, I was privileged to be saying grace at a lunch, and the speaker was a man called, uh, I believe it was Dan Barrow. Some of you may know him, a, a doctor lives in Druid Hills. And he showed uh, a little film about his work. Uh, he actually showed brain surgery during lunch, which put some people off their <laughs> chicken salad, but it was nonetheless absolutely <laughs> fascinating because wh what he did was he showed the picture of a, of a young man who was completely unable to control his limbs and and would fall over and had to be sort of strapped in a chair and was in really terrible, terrible shape. And what he did in the surgery was went into the brain and put something the size of a micro dot that was actually, he explained, a little comb-like thing that would respond to electrical impulses and stimulate that part of the brain. And then he showed this young man about three months later uh, walking on his own, still learning to use his limbs, conversing. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. And to my to my mind, uh, it was a miracle uh, that this man was otherwise would be condemned to a lifetime of being misunderstood and underestimated and managed. Really extraordinary. And so soon after that, I read a review of a book that has only just come out uh, this week in America, and I've been looking forward to it, by a doctor in England called uh, Henry Marsh. And some of you may have heard him on the radio this week. He's out publicizing this book. It's called Do No Harm. Stories of Life, Death, and Brain Surgery. And this distinguished brain surgeon recounts many of his successes and failures in a very matter-of-fact and engaging way. He doesn't like to dwell on the mystery of the mind or the fact that he's cutting into the place of consciousness and emotion. He says, as a practical surgeon, practical brain surgeon, I've always found the philosophy of the so-called mind-brain problem confusing and ultimately a waste of time. It's never seemed a problem to me. Only a source of awe. Only a source of awe, amazement, profound surprise that my consciousness, my very sense of self, is in fact the electrochemical chatter of 100 billion nerve cells. He calls his surgical specialty neither art nor science, prefers to think of it as a craft. He exhibits the kind of difficulty talking about or addressing death, even his own mother's death, that makes medicine at the end of life frequently so costly and frequently so unnecessary in many ways. And then that's a reality that he freely acknowledges. Very different than another book that came out a few months ago, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which we've talked about here. If, if, if if only we could spend more time talking about life and what life is to us, that when we come to the end of life, we can make choices based on what life is rather than on an anxiety-driven fear of death, a few more months, a few more weeks, a few more days, whatever it takes, doctor, we would all 
be better off and be living more fully in many ways. He's aware of um, how difficult it is to treat many things. Uh, we're all very struck and saddened by Joseph Biden Jr.'s uh, death of a brain cancer yesterday. He knows how hard it is and how frequently the diagnoses that he has to give people are not good ones and, and how unprepared we are to deal with a closing horizon. He knows that. But he's also profoundly amazed by what he can do and what is possible uh, as we find out more and learn more about the brain. I draw encouragement from his acknowledgement that he has a sense of awe in what could otherwise be a profoundly reductionistic view of what it means to be human. Awe, it's what we experience in the face of what we name so inadequately as God. It was awe that Isaiah of Jerusalem experienced in the temple when he heard God calling him to be a prophet. It was awe when he heard the seraph singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. It was awe that moved Nicodemus to say to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. It is awe that I experience when I stop long enough to actually apprehend what we're talking about in this doctrine of the Trinity that we are celebrating and raising up on this day, forged centuries ago in a time and place different from our own. And, but it manages to communicate, at least to me, that the essence of God is to be in relation. And that that relation uh, is revealed as love, and it is the relation that is the structure of the whole universe. That that banner over there with the three interlocking circles, I imagine them, I imagine them spinning, uh, bringing ever new possibilities into being and always connected at the center. It's awe that I am experienced when I'm reminded that what we think of as the smallest particles of matter are best described by scientists as energy in relation. And it's awe that I experience when I think about the incredible ever-expanding possibilities of new universes, parallel universes even. That's the sort of stuff that if I pause to think about it, makes the, the word God almost inadequate, but the reality that's being expressed so remarkable. And consider also this. We say that we are made in the image of God, and so we are made for relationship. Even when a horizon is drawing close, we are made for relationship, for creativity, for imaginative work, for ever-expanding, renewing possibilities for life. And we cannot be reduced to any single thing. Remember, I remember being introduced to the work of B.F. Skinner, the Harvard uh, behaviorist. Uh, in 1970-ish, he wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity and basically said free will, human free will, is a myth. Now, of course, we can say that we're conditioned in some ways, but that doesn't say everything about who we are or our freedom. Or in the 90s, as the genetic possibilities of science were, were being unfolded, there were a group of people, particularly the, what became the new atheists, saying, God... God is just a virus. 
God is a virus that is damaging, that somehow engages the collective consciousness. And a theologian called John Bowker was arguing against that even at that time. You see, we can't be reduced to any single thing. Consider, for example, how very little we know about how, how our brains really work and how there appears to be some kind of collective consciousness by which our imaginations are shaped, sometimes changing by leaps and bounds in what appears to be a very short time. Think about how societal norms change after years and years, even centuries of prejudice, suddenly being almost embraced as a new reality apparently very quickly. Think of Malcolm Gladwell's work on the tipping point here. One of my teachers, Edwin Friedman, was convinced that Columbus sailing to America opened up European imagination such that all the major figures of the Renaissance were born within 15 years or so of that event. Awe-inspiring stuff. Awe-inspiring stuff. Sisters and brothers, the Trinity is a way of talking about or picturing the mystery that is at the heart of the universe and the one in whose image we are made. The doctrine of the Trinity says it is of the nature of God to be in relation. That relation is revealed, as St. John says, as love. God is love. We are not simply our brains any more than we are simply our bodies or any more than we are some kind of mysterious essence that can be separated from our brains and bodies, often called a soul. We imagine that something goes, goes marching on uh, apart from the fullness of who we are as incarnate, enfleshed creatures. We're creatures, yes. Created for life, yes. Henry Marsh is very much in touch with human anxiety, our human anxiety about death and the almost desperate lengths to which we will go to avoid it. But if we can focus on life, what it means to us to be alive, what would constitute life such that we were willing to suffer a measure of pain, then we need not be so driven by our inchoate, unnamed, deep anxieties about death. Our key spiritual practices of worship, generosity, serving others, all point us toward the love who made us for love, the one we declare to be best grasped as Trinity, perhaps the greatest gift and insight that Christianity brings to the world of religious faith. It, God, this one revealed to us as Trinity, is best responded to in profound silence first and in awe and then in pursuing those practices of faith that serve to remind us and point us and shape us toward rich and full life, even in the face of death. So in silence, perhaps in awe, let us respond to the gospel.